Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do, you di why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to them, to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Of applause. Thanks, Ella. That was brave. And uh, I'm sure it meant a lot to your peers that you would read God's word before us. And we're about to dive into that very word. Let me pray first. Father, we pray that you would speak a word to us today that reaches the most veteran Christian and reaches the youngest among us. We pray that you would make us true disciples, people that aren't pretending, but people that really are living with their whole hearts for you. And we pray for those who are feeling passionless in their pursuit of you, God, that you would use today's word to stoke a new fire in their heart. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to start off today's sermon a little different. Um, I'm going to ask you guys some questions, and then I'm going to identify someone that I want to interview real quick at the front of the sermon. So raise your hand. This is for the younger folks. Raise your hand if you love the movie Frozen. Raise your hand. Okay, we got some people in the house. Awesome. Some older folks, too. This is cool. Now, I want you to keep your hand up if Frozen is in the top five of your favorite Disney movies. So this makes you like a Disney expert, a Disney expert. Is there anybody who feels like this? Frozen is my movie? Is it your movie? She loves it. All right, well, I need somebody who can answer the question, so let's go. All right, here we go. Great. So we've got our, our expert here. I'm going to ask some questions. The questions are going to be about some characters, so just answer honestly. 
My first question is, do you like Elsa or Anna better? Elsa. So what do you like about Elsa so much? That she has powers. Okay. Now I want to ask another question. Do you like Hans? No. How many of you agree that you don't like Hans? Okay, so what don't we like about Hans? What did he do? He wouldn't kiss Anna. You're right. You are an expert about that movie. And I honestly am a novice, but I looked it up for this sermon. Um, So apparently there's this character, Hans, in the movie Frozen, who seems to be the just Prince Charming of Disney movies, who's pursuing Anna. He's in love with her. It's building to this moment where she's sick and she needs to be healed by true love's kiss. And Hans leans in, right? He gets close to her face, and Tristan, my son, runs out of the room because he hates the kissy parts. But he doesn't quite get there. He stops, and he says, Oh, Anna, if only someone truly loved you. That's a burn of all burns, right? And so I think we can agree, we don't like Hans, because Hans was claiming to be somebody that he wasn't really. Hans was saying he loved Anna, but in reality, he didn't. He just wanted to use her to get to be the one in power on the throne. You know what? That's not just for Frozen. Christians, sometimes people call themselves Christians, but they actually aren't. You see, we heard a word, Ella underscore, she said, you hypocrites. Loved how you read that, Ella. And that word actually means pretenders. Jesus, in our passage today, calls the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites, pretenders, Hanses, people that aren't living and truly the way they claim to be. So we have to ask ourselves today, are we true Christians? Are we true disciples? Are we really following the Lord? Or are we pretenders, playing a part, playing it well, deceiving everyone like Hans did? Well, the beautiful thing is that God's Word tells us all throughout its pages ways that we can know if we're true disciples. And this passage that Ella just read is going to be one that gives us three things that we know if we're true disciples. The first one, if you're taking notes today, The first thing that true disciples know is their true authority. I believe it's up on the screen. If you're taking notes, it'll stay there for a little bit so you can capture it. True disciples know their true authority. So let's read in verse 1. Keep your Bibles open. We read, The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So are these just normal people? Well, they're Pharisees and they're scribes, so they're already leaders. But notice our text tells us that they're from Jerusalem. That means that they're from the headquarters. These aren't just any leaders. These are the heavy hitters. These are the big boss. These are the ones who have power, who are coming to put Jesus in his place. And so they ask a question. I'm going to read verse 2, and I'm going to ask somebody in the audience here, the the church today, um, what 
what the, the thing they're complaining about is. What's their problem with Jesus from verse 2? So let me read it, and then I'll ask. So they come from Jerusalem and say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So raise your hand if you know why they were upset with Jesus right now. Jen, in the back. Why were they upset, Jen? Yes, they didn't wash their hands. How many of you guys sometimes don't wash your hands before you eat? Me, but I, I hopefully we wash our hands on the regular, right? Washing our hands is not a big deal. So this seems like a kind of innocent question, doesn't it? Why are they coming all the way from Jerusalem saying, your disciples don't wash their hands, right? It's because the, for, the, for the, the Israelite leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, washing your hands was a big deal. They had a bunch of rules you had to keep. You had to wash your hands. You had to say certain prayers. You had to wear certain things. You had to do certain things to be righteous. They had a rule book. If you didn't live by that rule book, you weren't righteous according to them. So let's see how Jesus responds to them in verse 2. Does he say, I'm sorry, I'll wash my hands. I'll make my disciples wash their hands. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He contrasts. They say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? He says, why do you break the commandment of God? And in doing that, he's contrasting those two. Rules of man, commands of God, and showing these Pharisees that he has a different authority. True disciples know their true authority. And that authority is the Bible and the Bible alone. You see, they, they thought the rule book, they had it down. They had memorized it. They could repeat it. But they were playing from the wrong playbook. And they not only had the wrong playbook, their playbook, their rule book, actually contradicted the Bible. And we're going to see an illustration Jesus uses in verses 4 through 6. Read with me. He says, For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So that's what the Bible says. You've got to honor your parents. Now he contrasts it. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So the, there was this tradition in place where if your parents were aging and they needed you to take care of them, you could be like, oh, I'm vowing that my house is God's. I'm vowing that my money I've accumulated is God's. So sorry, mom and dad, that extra bedroom is for the Lord. Sorry, mom and dad, I, that rainy day account is, is for God. I can't tap into that for you. And in doing that, they were violating the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And it was even worse than that. You not only were vowing it for God, you could actually use it you could live in that room. You could have that be your, your man cave. You could do what you wanted with it. Just say, it's for God. When I pass away, it'll be his. And so you can see, they not only had the wrong rule book, their rules contradicted the Bible. They were allowing people to get away with throwing out or making void the word of God. Kids, this is what this would be like. You would be in your house playing with your favorite toy, 
and your mom shouts up from the basement or from downstairs in the kitchen. She says, hey, Leo, yeah, come uh, clean the dishes. And I would shout down, uh, mom, I decided I want to pray. This time is holy to the Lord. I don't know about you, but that would not fly in my house when I was growing up. My mom is famous for me throwing up food I didn't want to eat and her saying, clean it up and here's another helping. Go ahead and eat that. That's the kind of mom I had. She's a good mom. So you can see, why is Jesus dropping the hypocrite label on these Pharisees? It's because they were pretending to be holy. They had a rules book. They were Hanses. They were pretending to be somebody that they weren't. They're like, we're keeping these rules. And Jesus is saying, look, true believers, people that aren't pretending, bow their knee only to the word of God. The Pharisees were playing their part. They were washing their hands. They were holding their services. They were saying the right thing. But their hearts, they were vile. And they were inventing rules to get around God's word. So friends, the Bible, God's word, is our only authoritative standard and guide for righteousness. And what does that mean? It means what I say, Tim says, Alex says, Rick says, has to be submitted to what the Word of God says. You should not listen if it's not supported with God's Word. It means that wives, your husband, has to be supported and submitted to God's Word. Children, it means your parents have to be submitted to God's Word. There's no earthly authority put in place that isn't submitted to the Word of God. Now, the Bible addresses a lot of areas in our life. You know, there are a lot of commands that it's just very clear. Just don't do this, do this. But then there are these areas that are like the gray matters where the Bible applies, but it's not always easy to see exactly how it does. And in those categories, the things I like to call the gray matters, we've got to pursue God's counsel through the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to give us guidance. Go to our trusted friends. Ask for advice. And then we pray, and we come to a conviction, right? But you know what the problem is? Sometimes we can get in trouble because we fast, we pray, we earnestly seek God. We're like, this is what it looks like for me to honor God. And then we're like, and that's what it looks like for you too. To this person over here, we take our conviction that we worked out in the gray honoring God, and we assume that's what it's got to look like for everybody else who genuinely loves God. But the Bible is the standard, right? It's not necessarily going to look exactly the same in every single household here at Risen Hope. So whether you choose to school your kids at home, in private school, or in public school, right? Whether you choose to allow your kids to watch a show or yourself to watch a show or a movie may look different. There are standards in the Bible, but there needs to be wisdom in these gray matters. Whether you're allowing your kids to play video games, how much screen time, whether you're voting a particular type of way, there's a lot of gray. And we have to be careful that we're not elevating our well-thought-out convictions to be the Word of God. Because there's one authority. And true disciples know their authority is the Bible. And i got to be honest, I'm on Twitter, and I see just a lot of hatred and a lot of times it's between believers 
And a lot of times, it's conviction versus conviction. Like, I believe this. I believe that. Uh, uh. We go for the jugular, but we never get down to the root, to the word, and let the word speak. And not speak from our convictions, but speak from what does the Bible say about this. So, you know what? You know what we need to do? We need to make sure we continue challenging each other, continue saying, brother, is that right? But we need to do it in a type of way where we're pointing people to the Word of God. We need to ask each other, so I saw this in your life. I just want to ask, like, what, what scriptures are supporting your conviction there? Not just be like, well, I do this. Why don't you do that, right? We need to be like, okay, so you've thought about these three scriptures? Good. Have you prayed about this one? And offer for them the scripture that's helped inform your life and bow your knee to it. But on the flip side, in a culture where we got a lot of pressure to live up to certain standards and people will speak into our lives a lot, sometimes we can be more concerned with what other people think than what God's word says. We can strive with all our heart to be politically correct and not to be biblically correct. Right? We can just be earnest to just mirror the culture and everything so that we seem cool or hip or, or in vogue. But God's word has to be the sole authority in our life. So are you more eager to pattern your life after others or after just spiritually thought out convictions from God's word? Is God calling you maybe to rethink, well, I'm just doing that because they're doing it. I haven't really thought out what the Bible has to say about what I should be watching, how I should be in that relationship, why I should obey my parents. Maybe God's calling you to look at your true authority. His true disciples know their true authority. And now Jesus transitions. We move on to verse 10, and he turns to the crowd around them and gathers them together. Let's read in verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It's not, what God, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. So he's trying to make sure that these eavesdropping people that have been kind of witnessing this little heated exchange going on, they understand, look, they got it wrong. It's not about the washing of hands. It's about what's inside of you defiling you. But you know what's funny is the people that are closest to Jesus don't get it at all. The disciples just don't get it. They're super concerned that those uh, Pharisees and scribes are offended. What does what uh, the disciples say? They say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Literally scandalized, shocked, or stung in their hearts. They're probably afraid that those powerful people are going to come back and round them up. Like, did you really want to say that to them? Do you realize that they hate you now? What's Jesus say? Yup. They are not the plant of God. They're a weed. They are not the determiners of righteousness. They're blind guides. He's saying we need to move on from them because they're leading us the wrong way. They're, they're leaders, they're just not leaders of righteousness. They're blind guides. They're actively leading people to a false understanding of what God's called us to do. And they'll be judged for that. 
They're proud in their rules. They're proud in their traditions. And they're condemned because of them. And we should offend them. We need to flip their worldview upside down and help them see that that's not the right way. But Peter says, and Peter always asks these questions, doesn't he? He's always like, so shoot me straight, man. You know, that guy, he's like, you know, the conversation's been going for a while and he asks the question that's just at the heart of the issue, but probably everybody knows already. He goes, explain the parable to us, Jesus, you know. And Jesus says, are you still without understanding? And you have to get this. In the Greek, it's like super frustrated. The still word is at the front. It's like Jesus is saying, still? Still? Still you are without understanding? Or literally, still you're so dumb? You should have got it, Peter. You've been following me around. And so what does he do? Well, he gives him an answer. I'm grateful for Peter's question personally because it gives us the answer to the parable. And that's where we're going to hit next in our next point. True disciples know their true authority, but true disciples also know their source of sin. So that's our second point. True disciples know their source of sin. And we're going to look at what Jesus says that is in verses 16 through 20. And I'm going to ask another question. Maybe we can be like Jen and know the answer to this. Um, The question is this. What does Jesus say is the source of sin? So where does sin come from? Let's read verses 16 through 20. Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But one comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So where's the source of our sin? Where is the source of our sin? Tristan, what's the source of our sin? Sorry, buddy, don't worry about it. Let's see, anybody, what's the source of our sin? According to that, it was said twice in that passage. Twice in that passage. Go ahead, Gabby. Our hearts. Good job, job, Gabby. Thanks. Our hearts are the source of our sin. And you know what? How many of you feel like someone comes up to you and rebukes you, says, stop doing that, and you're like, how could I be sinning? Right? There's like this preset conviction that like when nothing's going on, I'm not sinning. And in fact, my default setting is to not sin. But the reality is, God's Word just told us that the source of sin is deep down inside of us. So when someone brings us a rebuke or whatnot, our first reaction ought to be humility. That the source of sin is in our hearts. James chapter 1 says this, Each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So long before you yell, I hate you to your mom or dad, God forbid, long before you hit your brother and sister, there's been something birthing in your heart. There's been sin that was already there waiting for an opportunity to get out. You know what? 
I was listening to sports radio this past week, which is usually a terrible idea, but I do it anyways. I'm like hooked on it. Um, and uh, I was listening to this sports radio broadcaster, and he was talking about this person, Richard Mendenthal, who's a running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers back in the day. And he was basically saying that the reason why this wide receiver left the Steelers is because Ben Roethlisberger is a racist. That's what he said. I don't know if it's true, but that was what he said. And this announcer went on to just rip into Ben Roethlisberger. What a terrible person. How dare he do this? He's awful. I hope he, nothing good ever happens to him again. Don't watch the Steelers. Blah, blah, blah. He just went off. And you, you know why he was able to stand up on that holy hill and look down and point the finger? Because he didn't get that the source of sin is in all of us. When we see someone commit sins, even like murder or racism, to that level, our approach should not to have, be to have a holier-than-thou approach. We ought to hate the sin. We ought to pray God punish the wicked, right? But we ought to realize that, like John Newton said, it's only grace that's made us differ. What's, what's the difference between me and the dude who's on death's row? Grace. That's it. Some through just incredibly, obviously miraculous means, and some through practical supernatural means, right? Guys, this is a leveling doctrine, isn't it? The source of sin is in all of us, and it ought to humble us. It ought to bring us to our knees so that we cry out, God, I need you. And that leads us to our last point. True disciples know their desperate need. So they know their true authority, they know the source of their sin, and because of that, they know their need. So what's our need? Kids, do you need to just stop disobeying? Do you need to just stop using those naughty words? Friends, adults, do you need to just stop twisting the truth so that you look better in stories? Do you need to just stop stealing and cheating on your taxes? Do you need to stop having that relationship and that'll fix everything? No. The Pharisees would have us believe that just changing our actions will solve our problems. They'll, they'll have us believe if we just follow the right rules, we're good. But what God's Word tells us is that our problem is much deeper. The source of our sin is in our hearts. You see, sin is like a cancer. It's in us. It's down in there, and it's spreading outwards. It's, it's not something we can just throw a Band-Aid on and say, I'm good. Sin is, is so in us. We're like a house that's structurally damaged. You can't just put a fresh coat of paint on us and make us good. We're, we're like a tomb, and there's dead people inside, and it smells terrible. And you can't just whitewash a tomb. Those dead people need to live. Amen? What's our need like? Our need is desperate, as desperate as death, as desperate as the people who are looking at their freshly deceased relative, that desperate. But God's grace extends even down into the source of our sin, even down into our humbled, bowed down, desperate state. 
In the Old Testament, God writes a story of Israel failing over and over and over again. He writes a story of people trying to follow His commandments and just failing. Even back in the garden when there was one commandment, don't eat the fruit, we couldn't do it. And so we get to this point where this pattern of desperation is building. And our, our situation is desperate. The Old Testament was desperate. And so Jesus, so God, through his Holy Spirit, inspires Jeremiah to say these words. Listen to them. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? Within them. I will write it on their hearts. He was going to do something totally different when Jesus came. He was going to take our dead hearts, our seeking to follow rules, and take those rules and actually work them into us as new creations in God. God saw Israel's failure. He sees your failure. And he's saying to you, I have a solution to your problem. No one else does. They're going to tell you just change the way you're living. Go to that recovery meeting. Start obeying. But God says, nah, I got actually the cure. And his, his name is Jesus. And he looks into your heart and he says, I see those thoughts. I see those fantasies you've cherished, not acted on yet. I've seen, I've seen your, your anger at your parents. I've seen the bitterness you've harbored that you haven't yet let anybody see. And I want you to be saved from it, and I want to stand in your place. I want to be the one who's called the harborer of murder. I want to be the one who's called the adulterer. I want to be the one who dies for you. And so Jesus comes and he places this amazing promise into our hearts and says, trust in me, trust in me. And I will die for you, and you will be saved. So, so friends, especially young ones in our midst, I just have to ask you have, you, have you confessed your sin? Maybe you really love your parents. You really want to honor them. But you, have you realized how needy you are? That there's sin in your heart that Jesus needs to take away. Have you confessed to the Lord? He wants to save you. You have to realize you can't balance out the bad with the good. If you break and disobey, you can't make up for it by obeying. You need to run to Jesus as the only source of salvation for you. Maybe you're panicking and despairing when you break a rule. You're in your house, and, you, and maybe this is for us grown-ups too where you're just in a place where you keep on messing up and you're just going into despair. Brothers and sisters, have you experienced the freedom of knowing that Jesus died for that? Have you experienced the freedom of knowing that rules will never get you to heaven, but it's giving up and trusting in Christ that will? I'll give you my own testimony. I grew up in the church, you guys know that, you know my parents and uh, received a lot, of, a lot of blessings. And I was the type of kid who was fourth born, who had three examples ahead of him of what not to do, 
Uh, they all love the Lord. Noel loved the Lord. Uh, but they did stuff, and I would be like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. So I was able to navigate the early time of my life pretty well without really getting in trouble a ton. I was a good rule follower. But then, as I got older, I started, like, loving that. I started loving that I was a rule follower. I started, like, in children's ministry when they were like, who wants to play Jesus today? I was like, I'm the choice. <laughs> it's funny because it's ridiculous. But I really thought I had it together because I was good at keeping those rules. Friends, I had to realize as I grew that I couldn't actually keep those rules. They were very superficial. They were like not getting yelled at, not getting disciplined. But I realized as I got older that suddenly I was starting to have struggles. I was starting to have a double life where I was great at following the commandments that were external, but in the secret, I was running after my heart's desires. And it came to a place where I had to fall on my knees because I was so messed up and realized I was so broken and dead inside that I just cried out to God in front of all my friends and in front of my parents and said, I can't do this. I'll never forget that day and I'll never forget the burden that was lifted from my shoulders. So friends, kids, if you feel like a pressure, a pressure to follow those rules, come to Jesus. And realize you, you can literally be saved by God and not be perfect. And there's such joy that comes with that. You know what the amazing thing is, y'all? It's not just that God saves us from our bad rule keeping and, and takes our sins away and forgives us. It's that he brings about a complete reversal of death. He doesn't just save us. He takes us from death to life. What does it say in Ephesians 2? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He comes into our tomb and doesn't just whitewash the wall. He comes into our house and he doesn't just paint it. He changes fundamentally who we are so that now we're not perfect, but man, do we love the commandments of God. Man, do we love these words of, yes, I want to be like this God. That's what happens, and that's not you. If you feel that way right now, if your heart is burning in your chest, it's because God has given you a new heart. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope, so that now as you're born again, you actually have the hope inside of you. It's an unstoppable force. And so I have to ask you, friends, friends, amen, friends, are you living like you're alive? Are you living like you're alive? in Christ? Are you more concerned with the rules you got to keep, with the Bible plans you got to keep up with, with the prayer list you got to get through, or are you fanning the flame within your heart of passion for Jesus?
Has your communion with God just become dry? Your attendance in church is spotty because you just come when your guilt's so high that you can't not. Are you coming because you know God's here and your heart needs it and your Savior's with you personally in a relationship? So has your devotion to God become mindless duty? Are you just doing it? You're just doing what you always did? Maybe your, your giving has become begrudging. Maybe your hospitality has become it's just something you dread. We need to realize that if we feel that way, God's calling us to repent. Even if we're not doing anything that contradicts the law of God, even if our hearts have gone dry, He has in His, His plan for us that He wants to fill us afresh. He wants to give us a new love for him. He wants to restart the engine inside of you. He's placed there. I want to invite the band to come back up because I want to take time to respond um, just even in the midst of our sermon before we end today. We can be functionally dead and be Christians who have been born again but living kind of like we're not for seasons. And I'll tell you what, these last three weeks for me, the Lord, as I've prepped this sermon, has really been impressing this on my own heart. I'm with you in this, if this is you. I just had a baby, it's amazing. Or my wife just had a baby. Um, <laughs> that's a good clarifier, right? <laughs> Almost got in trouble there. <laughs> Hopefully no one recorded that. <laughs> About, you know, we just had a, a, a child and it's, it's a glorious thing, but I am tired, I'll just tell you. Um, and my, my, my job at the house, what I do with the kids and keeping up with everything, it's just gotten more. And I've found myself just groaning and just complaining my way through the day a lot. Um, my idols have been crying out, like, feed me. And I'm inside a place as, as I'm preparing, like, Lord, I just need the rain. I'm dry. And I, I think there's people here today who are in that place. I think you've, you've forgotten that you've been made alive and you need to experience it again. He's made us to worship in seasons of heavy labor. He made, he's made us to love him even in the toil. So if you've been living like a functionally dead person, the Lord wants more for you. His grace will not delay if you call on him. So are you parched and dry because you've been focused on the rules? You've been keeping track of the external without focusing on the internal. The grace of God comes like a mighty rain to those who humbly confess. And as I was preparing, I felt like I had a picture for folks that this, this application point of being functionally dead was for. It, it's a picture of a soldier fighting a battle against a massive army. And you're just at the front and you're just mowing down the enemy but it's just it extends as far as the eye can see your enemy's there it's just a never ending battle and then zoomed in on your face it's just cold eyes just a motionless person let's believe that's, that's a picture of somebody who's facing a trial here today where you feel like your love for the Lord has run cold you're the emotionless, joyless soldier as you fight. And God's called you to be a joy-filled worker. 
He's called you to be more than just an obedient robot. He's called you to fight your battles with a smile on your face and a burning desire for our King's glory. To water and sow and reap in the fields, dancing in the rain of God's provision. To clock in on Monday, not watching the clock tick by, moaning through every second, but to count it a joy to toil for the King. To count it a joy to even suffer the mockery of coworkers. So I want to give us an opportunity to respond right now by if this is you and you think that you've been in a place where you've forgotten that you've been made alive, you haven't been experiencing that, you've been dry, you want to be freshly filled and minister to, I want to invite you to come forward and myself and the pastors will be here to pray for you, but I also want to encourage if you have a loved one that's up here who wants to be prayed for, that you would come with them and minister to them. It doesn't need to just be parents or, or uh, pastors up here. It can be friends. And as you come, I just want to remind you, if you do come, there's no stigma. You're the blessed one. You respond, that's God's grace in your life. So come and receive. Come to Jesus and find that your heart still beats with the pulse of his love. Come to Jesus and find that though your circumstances haven't changed, your heart has. Find that you can be content. You can do all things in Christ Jesus. Come to Jesus and receive faith to meet you with your trial with his unstoppable love. Come to Jesus. As we sing, come forward. And if, if you're not coming forward, let's sing. Let's respond to this sermon and ask God to help us to believe the words we're singing. Amen. Let's sing. Let's all stand.